Hello, Sobertown. Welcome to the Sobertown Podcast. Let's jump on that sober train and ride right into the incredible, wonderful world of sobriety. Real quick, I want to mention SobertownPodcast.com. It's an amazing place where you can go get tons of resources to help you build a sober toolbox specifically for yourself. I want to mention the Sobertown Facebook group. We're a small growing community. What's said in Sobertown Facebook stays in Sobertown Facebook. And I would also, I always want to mention the I Am Sober app. It's where most of us met. It's an amazing community. You go in, you download the app, whatever day you have, like if you're starting out on day zero, you will be around people that are just starting out on day zero. You can, you all grow together. You, you can build an amazing sober crew and help each other along on this journey, which can really get complicated sometimes. I would invite everybody to go check out the I Am Sober app. And then today we have an amazing guest. I'm really excited that she's here. We have Carolyn, AKA Amaste AF from the IASA community. Hey, Carolyn, how you doing? I'm doing well, Jeffrey. How are you? I am good. I am in sitting in Durango, Colorado, in a semi truck, doing this interview with you. Nice. This is this is my studio. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. So today cool. you're going to share your story with us. My long story. Well. I was born in the summer of love, very uh, tumultuous time for the world. And my parents were young, ambitious. Uh, they were 24 and 26 when I was born, but they were married at 17 and 19. And my mom, she says she was waiting for my father to get in a good mood until she had children. And so I was definitely planned and very loved and very adored without a doubt. However, that changed pretty quickly when she had, or they had, my brother. And uh, he wanted a girl, my father, very unique and in a bad way. Uh, He's a narcissist, heavy, heavy drinker. But my mom was used to that because her father and all of her family were heavy drinkers. So she didn't really think anything out of that. She just blamed his personality for stuff. So she ended up, after we saw him hit her, and she was washing blood from her arms. I'll never forget that vision. Uh, she took my brother and me and walked out. And we moved into an apartment. Evidently, she was saving money on the side to move out and leave him. So we moved into an apartment. I'll never forget, you know, to three of us. And I didn't mind because I was very scared of my father. I don't know. We just had a really nice little threesome. And just the three of us just always doing fun stuff. My mom was just a wonderful human being. And uh, to this day, she's one of my best friends in the world. After that, we lived there a year, but it was nonstop harassment by this new girlfriend. They would serve us papers, like make up stories. And he was just frustrated because he wanted his kid. So he would sit in court and listen to the, the custody battle and stuff like that. My mom ultimately won the custody battle. We ended up moving again to Fullerton, where we ended up living for five years. And that became this amazing community of a bunch of single moms. And it was just this world of everybody's door was open and we'd run in and out of everybody's homes and everyone took care of each other. And it was just, I look back on that time in my life and it was pretty wonderful. And I look back now, I drove by there one time and it was very poor. I never felt poor because my mom 
you know, she provided for a lot of different families. She's just very generous. And I met my best friend uh, for life there, my friend Cheryl, who uh, to this day, 45 year friendship, where we met her there. Her mother babysat my brother and me, actually, when my mom worked. My mom was very, very successful. So she ended up uh, moving to another house she bought on her own. And it was in a, in a, not a great area, still wasn't a great area, but we were surrounded in those apartments that I had mentioned. Everyone was doing drugs. It was, I said to my friend, Cheryl, are we the only ones who aren't doing drugs? So like, it was just how everybody coped through life. They were, the parents were coming home from work. The moms were drinking or smoking pot, or we saw people, you know, doing things that were like, whoa, we shouldn't be seeing this or there was one lady who she looked like all these different men were coming into her apartment. We're like, what is that woman doing? You know, just all these things I should not have seen. I was just, and we weren't doing anything. We we're just observing all of it. And so we moved into this apartment. I mean, this new house uh, when I was about 10. Actually, why I should actually back up a little bit because I kind of on my little notes here, I broke it up a decade. We didn't move till I was 10. So this, I'm still in the one decade. When my mom won the custody battle, she spent a lot of time going to the hospital. She has chronic asthma. She was doing the inhalation therapies. And there was a lot of, see my mom almost die constantly. She, I would like have to make dinner for my brother sometimes. Then I would go to my father's house and I would have to see him drink himself into oblivion. My stepmother would have to take me home because he couldn't drive. But he would drive if he was coherent. Like the times I, that I've been on the road with my father drunk is pretty scary. I would go, are you okay to drive, dad? And I would go, you know, why did you just hit her? Or I would stand in front of her while he was about to hit her because he was a drunk. You know, she'd say something and just something logical. Like, come to dinner, it's ready. I'll come whenever, you know, he's just an awful, awful person. And so uh, I was just around this trauma all the time. And I had a stuttering problem when I was in kindergarten and they had me take therapy and they said it was from the trauma that I had experienced. So they worked on in and out with me for about a year. I couldn't say my W's and my R's. I always felt like the only way he would love me is if I had something to tell him that I did great. Like I had to tell him that I got A's on tests and what a good student I was. And he really ignored my brother. And I remember him actually saying to me, when I was about nine years old, he's like, you're my favorite. I said, that's not very nice to say. You know, I, mean, I was so, I love my little brother. He's just an amazing little brother and so adorable. And Gene, man, he was uh, a damned genius at a very young age. So he was mentally gifted and kind, sweet. And he called him a crybaby and he was just a mean soul. So I was felt like I had to take care of my brother when I was around my father. And that just wasn't, I knew it wasn't normal. And I hid it because I didn't want anybody to know that I'm suffering all through that. Because then when I went to my mom's Monday through Friday and also Sunday, I just had to see my dad on Saturdays. And we just had to get over it. So then when, you know, after 10, so from the years 10 to 20 was when, oh my gosh, what a crazy decade that was. When my mom bought a home, it was pretty exciting. Our friends were like, oh my God, is your mom rich now? Because of course, everything's relatives. My apartment friends would come over to this house and, and visit and hang out. My mom always took care of everybody, took us all everywhere, almost Disneyland, not the very farm, wherever we wanted to go, Catalina Island. In our minds, it was pretty extravagant, but you know, again, it's all relative. Sherry married this wonderful man when I was about 12 and we'd only lived in our house for a year. 
in that year, you know, Southern California, she made a fort. She made a lot in that to that from that house that she sold it a year later. We ended up combining that money with my stepdad's money. He sold his condo and bought a moved to a nicer place where they still they my mom still lives in that house today. She's almost eighty, but uh, that was a really interesting time when she married my stepfather because my stepsister moved in. She was bulimic, alcoholic. I didn't know any of this. Also did drugs. She was pretty cool, you know, air quotes, cool. She was a surfer, typical California girl, which is where I was born and raised, never left. And she was an interesting character. So they were dealing with her problems. Meanwhile, my brother is doing drugs with her. And I, of course, I didn't know any of them. I've, everyone thought of me as goody two-shoes, don't tell Carolyn, keep everything away from Carolyn. So they're doing all this crazy stuff. I'm in junior high school. I had to move because we had moved. So it was very sad. I'd leave my friends and go to this new junior high school. Luckily, very quickly had this group of friends. But it was it was some work and it was traumatic for me. I'd come home crying because I missed my friends. We didn't have internet back then or phone. You know, we didn't we had a phone and I would call them, but it's like you're in a new town, you're in a new place. Make a new life. I tried out for cheerleading, didn't make it. I tried out for drill team, made it. So I was drill team girl with some friends. And I think the sadness I had was I just never felt like I fit in. And that was, I come home really sad, put it that I was really depressed child. And no one ever thought about it, things back then. They would just say, oh, she's just sad. She doesn't like change. Carolyn doesn't like change. Everyone was like, you were just given a label by your family. It wasn't like... I went to a psychologist. So if I was that sad, if I had a child that sad, I would seek help, right? I was just sad. But I really didn't have a reason to feel sad. And I started, but then my father started asking me if I gained weight. So my father was really into, he would have Playboy books all over his, you know, his coffee table. And he was, would say, you know, look at these girls, look at these bodies. You should try to, you should aspire to look like these girls. And I'm telling my mother and she would call him mad. Like, I can't believe you're talking to my daughter like this. Disgusting. And so, you know, she would end up calling him almost every week after we saw him on the weekend, she would call him something like either he didn't feed us, we were starving or, you know, what he would say to us or just horrible things he would do. And it was just this weird back and forth, just a lot of trauma. And then my brother was sent to military school because he wasn't getting a good grade. Mentally gifted child, getting bad grades for obvious reasons. You know, he was doing drugs. And I kind of was in a separate lane from him. We were two grades different. I was, meanwhile, thriving. This, this time in my life, I was actually, I tried out for cheerleading. And that kind of changed my life because a whole new world opened for me. I was a, I walked into my highest school years as a freshman cheerleader. So I had these older girls telling me, watch out for boys. Boys all only want one thing. And I was like, all the guys I knew were cool. Like I liked, I kind of liked guys better than girls because guys were funny. They were cool. They didn't talk bad about each other. Like girls were always talking bad about each other. I just couldn't stand that, that mean girl thing that I wasn't part of that regime, I guess. I don't know. Didn't understand it. Again, my friend Cheryl, I always had her. She was in another Lived her left the way that she was, just like one of the guys. So we would, when I would go visit her, it was a lot of guys in the neighborhood, all those friends. They all listened to heavy metal and love, or all this music, long hair people. 
they were all smoking pot and drinking and things like that, but we just didn't do that yet. It wasn't our, wasn't our thing. So anyway, the cheerleading thing was really fun. I just, just was thriving during that time of my life. Great time. Then I didn't make it my next year. I'd messed up my, my routine. I was absolutely devastated. My body was changing as well. So I, I always thought I was fat. Somebody else would say I was becoming a woman. You know, I had that body dysmorphia issue going on. Being a cheerleader, it's very prevalent because you wear a short skirt every single day of the week because there's always a game you're cheering for. I mean, I mean, I made the finals and then like the end, you had you were chosen by your your school. It was like this open, kind of like you're voting for a class president, right? You're they had to vote who was to be a cheerleader. I was just devastated. It really helped affected me. So I'm like, well, I'm a swimmer. I'll I'll go out for swim team. Plus, that'll help my weight. You know, I'm thinking physical because I was very much into the physical thing back then. And my girlfriends all wanted to go to this barbasan, like modeling school to learn to be, to put makeup on. And my mom was like, absolutely not. No daughter of mine is going to care about their looks. My mom was like the woman's lib woman. Very, you know, she was the only woman in her job and she was an aircraft. She was just very, don't be one of those women that cares about her looks. Just worry about your, your brain and your, you know, working hard, becoming something, right? Growing in a business. So I was trying to make everybody happy. My father happy by my looks and, you know, being good in school so he could brag about me. And then my mother just, you know, ambition and drive. And I just trying to make everybody happy. Meanwhile, I was miserable. I didn't, I was smart enough. I was pretty enough. I wasn't anything enough, nothing. Just absolutely hated myself. I had absolutely no self-esteem whatsoever. And, but on the, on the side, on the side, I would have all these friends that I admired everybody. I wanted to be like so-and-so, be like so-and-so, be like them. And then I would go to parties and everybody was doing quote unquote bad things. And I just wasn't that, I was too afraid. I didn't want my parents to be disappointed in me. Uh, my brother was struggling uh, with things, kind of, again, not paying attention. I know he, he was had alcohol poisoning one my mom was dealing with that. I wasn't really paying attention. So all this crazy craziness went on in school and I ended up swimming. I, I met my first boyfriend. So I had my first long-term boyfriend. Uh, I call myself a serial monogamist. I have like a handful of them in my life. And he was my first and we spent a lot of time together. A lot, a lot of time together, about a year and a half. And so I began realizing that he filled an emptiness, fulfilled an emptiness in me where he gave me self-esteem, his words, his actions. So that was the ticket to have a boyfriend. And so I went from boyfriend to boyfriend to boyfriend. And it was, that was the only way that, I, that was my identity, was who my boyfriend was. But also my family, because my mom, one side of my, my mom's family, they're all musicians, which basically means they all died about 50 because they all died from, you know, alcoholism and at least her uncles, every single one of her uncles, she had five of them. Um, they all played in the big band area. They were all dead by, I never met any other. Her father died. He lived the longest. He died at my age, 55 of alcoholism. My grandmother lived a long time. She was a singer, but she got out of that lifestyle because my, my, my grandpa had beat her up so bad. She, she was unrecognizable. So she, with my mother, left. My mom grew up in children's homes. I, I don't know why I missed this part in the, uh, before I was born, but that kind of molded my mother where she 
was really strong and could be by herself because she had to grow up by herself and take care of herself, basically. And so I had no, no family on that side. The other side that was all alive, they were all educators, highly educated, you know, two PhDs, deans of colleges, deans of schools, all teachers. And my father would say, none of them make any money. So his whole thing was money. Narcissist, work, 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 make money, money, money. It's all he cared about. So if I liked anything that wasn't going to be make money, like in school, if I said, oh, I love this, I love that, he would go, there's no money in that. You should focus on math and science. You're good in math and science. So this ha- kind of has a meaning because around that time, you know, I made cheerleading. I think I was a junior in high school. I made cheerleading. Now I was heavier, hated myself. And so I was doing, I was never had any sort of like food disorder, except for I would eat a lot one day and then would starve the next day. And they said that's a form of bulimia, but I wasn't ever like throwing up or whatever. But so I was trying to figure out my, my body thing, my body situation, how I, I wanted to ingest food when I was depressed. So that was another addiction that I did. I never really thought of it as that, but now what I know now, that definitely was an addiction. And then I would not say I wanted to accomplish looking okay. So I would like starve the next day. Well, my mom ended up putting me in, in something in like a, one of those diet places. So I would learn how to eat like a normal person. So that became kind of a lifestyle where I would eat a lot and then not eat, eat a lot, not eat. I live my life to this day. I live my life working on keeping myself a certain way that I'm happy with myself. Not everybody else, myself. I don't care if someone says, you look great, you look great. I literally ignore everybody. It's just what I see. And my husband has convinced me that what I see is not what I am. He's like, there is no way that you that you see yourself the way the world sees you. So anyway, that he's helped me a lot in that. But now back to this, this era between uh, 1997 to uh, 1987, I, this boyfriend, this boyfriend that I had, I broke up with him because he just was not happy that I was so social. That social also fulfilled the need in me where what other people thought is, was everything, all unhealthy. You know, I would hang out with my group of friends. I had these wonderful group of friends stolen here. Oh yeah, the cheer. So when I made cheerleading my final year, I ended up coming, it was one morning, my brother was severely bad at drugs at this point. People would knock on the door, we, our, my, our rooms kind of were side by side, knock on the door in the middle of the night. And I think she was selling drugs out of this room. I don't know, but something was going on. I couldn't tell my mother because I didn't want her to be upset. But I know he was doing bad drugs. And I woke up in the morning, he was, he even looked different. Like my brother was known for, to be so handsome. Every, my girlfriends would go, my God, your brother's gorgeous. You know, these loved looks. He was charming, funny. I was Landon's sister, you know, he was just this character. And he woke up one morning and he just threw this like coming off drug tirade. And he was, you know, throwing things around, breaking things. And I was really crying. I called my mom at work. She goes, I can't talk right now. I'm in the middle of the meeting, you know? And I was like, no one cared, but I was so sad. My whole world keep crumbling. I felt like my, my world was crumbling because see, I'm in a 16 year old head, hormones, fatter than I should be. I'm a cheerleader. And I feel like my whole world's coming to an end. And so I find every pill I could find at my house, which was, you know, 
Anacin, all like like those drugs that you take, you have a headache, right? And I just took all of them, every one of them. And I was lying there waiting to die. I just wanted to be gone. I didn't think of anybody, didn't think of anything. It wasn't for attention. I just wanted to be gone. I hated everything. It came to like, I'm, it was all too much. And nothing's happening. It's like, shit, nothing's happening. So I drove to school. Genius that I am. I had a little, you know, the, the bug that my mom bought when she was pregnant with me. It's 1967 Volkswagen bug. I drove to school and I just, everyone looked funny. It was, my vision was getting distorted. And so then I was getting really dizzy. And I went to a best friend of mine. I think I said to her, I go, I think I did something really stupid. And I said, I, I took a lot of pills. I wanted to die. And I said, and nothing was happening. And now something's happening. And I don't know what to do. So she and my two friends of mine rushed me to the hospital. And they got in trouble, which I feel terrible about, for ditching school. And uh, eventually they got, it was okay because of the reason. But. I spent three days in the hospital, I think. I don't really remember. This was a, this was a time in my life, no, but the family doesn't talk about. It was like a blip in their eyes. Uh, my mother was pissed because she missed work. And because she said, she, you did this to me. You did this to punish me because I didn't take your call when you called me. My father, ironically, sat next to me crying. And I was like, my father, who's like, big time asshole, you know, he loved me in his own peculiar way. I discovered, and then I discovered what an idiot I, I was. And so it was a lot of soul searching during that time. So it was actually a time where I was like, cause I grew up with my babysitter who took care of me for 10 years. We learned Christianity. My mother was an atheist and my father said, there's something out there or agnostic. So religion was never talked about in my home. I wasn't baptized or anything, but in those that 10 years with my babysitter, you know, we prayed before every meal, we prayed before nap time where she was extremely religious. And so during that time in, in the hospital, I just kind of like pray, like, God help me, you know, like I don't, whatever God is or something out there, help me because I don't know how to get through this life. It's so, it's too much. And everyone called me hypersensitive. The doctor said she did this for attention. I hated her. I said, I'm never going back to that bitch again. That's what I told my mom. I'm not, I didn't, I'm not, didn't do it for attention. I wanted to be gone. There's just, you know, the expectations on me as a child, but I really put them on myself. If I, if I look back, my mom loves me. My dad loves me. My brother loves me, but you know, it was all about me, right? I guess I was that teenage thing where it was all about me. You know, so I moved on from that in a much ele more elevated mindset. I was happier. I was thinner. This is what's sick. I'd lost so much weight in the hospital because I threw up for three days, getting that shit out of my system. I literally left there going, I'm thinner. Like that's how my sick brain worked that this time. <laughs> So I was finished my, my cheerleading years. No one talked about it. I don't know if anybody even knew. If they did, no one brought it up to me. Not one soul. It was like the bet. The, it was yesterday. It, it, I moved forward. I ended up changing my group of friends, kind of. I didn't really change, but I ended up hanging out with a new girl that I met in swim team. Very, very cool girl. 
This one is one of my girlfriends who died recently of a drug overdose. Weird story, but this girl became my friend. She's the first girl I ever smoked pot with. She, I looked up to her for her strength, her inner strength. She was cool, had so much confidence. I could not comprehend her confidence. Like it was beyond me. Um, and she really liked me. Like we were just really good pals. So I ended up going, hanging out with her quite a bit. I had a new boyfriend who was older than me that I took to my senior prom. We didn't even stay at prom. We ended up getting all dressed up, didn't even get pictures. We left. We're like, we're done with high school. Like this is stupid. And it was, I was getting that attitude of blase, very, very unique from what I used to be. And because uh, of Tori, this girl that I became really good friends with. So she really fulfilled a need in me to give me strength. I ended up getting accepted into UC San Diego College. And my, you know, my parents were, of course, very proud. My, my friends here, my really good friends were going to cosmetology school, all of them. And then my some other friends had 10 friends going to San Diego State. So I said to my parents, can I go to San Diego State? I'm too scared to go by myself to UC San Diego. She goes, Carolyn, you got the grades. You got accepted and you worked so hard to get in there. Of course, they're not, you know, you're going to, you know, UC San, San Diego. I go, but I want to go to San Diego State because all my friends are there. So she's like, okay, it's cheaper for us. But if that's what you want to do, see, this day and age, I would say to my kid, no, you work hard to go get in there. You're going there. You know, you're, it's a better school, blah, blah, blah. But my parents, my parents were not pushy like that. So I went to San Diego State. I would, I lived in the dorms. My roommate and I, Tori, my good friend Tori was going there too. She was in a different dorm room than I was in. And the, my roommate was really into, she's a valley girl. She came from the valley. So I'm still California. We were all still in California. But so she brought all these albums, like all these albums that I just devoured. My brother was a musician. So I, you know, listen to a lot of older type music. If he was into punk, which I wasn't really into, this opened up a world of music to me. Like I became this addicted to music. So I have this, if I look back, my, my series of addictions, you know, the food addiction, the, the music addiction, where it was just absolutely obsessed. So I'd spend all my days in class and I would come back to our dorm room and just devour her albums. She had a very wealthy father and just her story. She was a, not a really a good girl. She did a lot of drugs. She, she would bring a lot of guys to our room. Uh, she was very different than me. I was very, you know, I had my, I still had my boyfriend at home and people were making fun of me. Why, why would you have a boyfriend and go to and, and college? Why wouldn't she meet somebody new? I saw her I, and I started drinking with her. So she, that was my first started drinking. So we'd go into to parties and we would drink. I discovered, you know, beer. I didn't like it, but discovered, you know, harder drinks. I don't ever remember getting drunk then when I went to that school, but I ended up missing my boyfriend and my mom so much. I was only there for one semester and she was doing a lot of drugs in the room. I didn't want to deal with that. I just didn't like the ceiling, but I left there still obsessed with music. This was, you know, mid eighties, heavy metal was really becoming huge. I'm living in a neighborhood with, you know, the guys from Metallica, all these bands were coming out of 
LA. There were tons of bands in LA. My brother was touring with his band, different places. I was in school and lived for concerts. So I was in, went to hundreds and hundreds of concerts, all I did. And in those concerts, I thought, am I the only one who's not doing cocaine? Like everywhere was doing cocaine, everywhere I went, never did it. I was too afraid because I wanted my brain to be good. But if I didn't get good grades, you know, I thought my parents wouldn't love me. So I was, I was changing my major from computer science engineering to uh, business because my dad says, you are so social. You should be a salesperson. Like that is what you should. Everyone I know who has a personality like yours just kills it in sales. So I thought, okay, I'll change it to that. And it was much easier. Studying was less, more room for partying, more room for concerts. And I went with my boyfriends. So I ended up getting a job at, a, at, at people now know it as Costco. It was called Price Club back then. When I was 19 years old, I got a job at, I worked at a, first I worked at a restaurant as a hostess. And then all my friends there doing cocaine. I'm like, I got to get out of here. Like, this is crazy. So then I went to Price Club, worked there for six years while I was, you know, finishing my college years and after college, actually. So I met a boyfriend and a new boyfriend. And, but I missed a couple parts where I was, I was dating these guys that were like, just losers, you know, like just doing tons of drugs. They're really good looking and they just worship me. So my dad made this observation. He goes, you know, you date these guys that just worship you because you have no self-esteem. And it's just, they're not healthy. Like you, you just can't, you shouldn't be doing this. So anyway, I thought you're right. You know, so the, I met a guy, I was introduced to this gentleman who was going to the same school I was for going to Cal State Fullerton. I moved home to be close to my mom and my friend and my boyfriend at the time, but dumped him immediately to, a, a, you know, a coke addict. That was really nice. Then I left him because he cheated on me. And then I met this other, I didn't know he was a coke addict. Ended up moving in with him. Never saw him sleep. His nose bled every night. Didn't put two and two together because I do drugs. So I drank heavily with him. He did. I didn't know he was doing cocaine. Then I found out that he was stealing my rent money and not paying. And then he would ask my mom for money. So he was taking money from my mom. This all came to a head. My mom moved me out and I was like, I'm done with losers, you know? And so uh, both of those guys ended up in jail eventually. I, I never kept in touch with them, but I ended up meeting this guy named Sean, who I ended up being with for seven years. And he, to this day, is one of my best friends. Great guy. We just never got married. I said, why are we ever going to be married? He thought Sunday, but I ended up, we ended up just going our separate ways, but he, I did a lot of partying and concert going. He was into the same music. So but I grew with him. I, he made me nicer. He was a real nice person. He says, you're so angry. And I was a very angry person. Like just my, I think my upbringing, I do think that he, he even mentioned that because I think it's your dad, like your dad's an angry guy and da da da. So he really helped me. So every, I think that every guy that I was with really improved who I was as a person improved me. So he was really dead set on making me a nicer person. So he didn't do any drugs at all, but he, we, we all drank, but he had to carry me home from every party. He was very big. He was five, he was six, seven, bodybuilder, very handsome. And so I, my boy, my husband now <laughs> always looks at me. My mom has pictures on her walls of him. What are you doing with me? You know, and but he was, he wasn't deep enough, but I had, a, I, my drinking just escalated. Part the par, every party I went to, I drank until oblivion. 
why do I have to carry you home from every party? Because you can't. You know, that was my joke. I actually thought I was, it was a badge of honor that I drank that, that I partied that much with all my friends. And, you know, I've been always been surrounded by people who protected me. Like they wouldn't let me drive, even though I wanted to. To this day, I think a buddy of mine, Mike, saved my life because I almost drove one night. I thanked him all the time. All these people are still friends of mine. None of them know what I'm doing. You know, none of them know that I've, I've stopped drinking. I see them all on Facebook, but I don't, I don't bring that part of my life to Facebook. So anyway, that decade was pretty interesting. I pretty much summed up that decade. Going into like from 87 to from 20 to 29. Yeah, I pretty much went through that as well. That was it. I did was, was really interesting though, is I ended up, I have my, my college degree now. And I thought I need to be a businesswoman. My job at Price Club, they had asked me to work in their marketing department because I worked there for so long and I had so many friends there. It was like another world. And I said, no, I wanted to wear a suit. I wanted in my head, I wanted to be my mom. So I wanted to wear a suit. So I got my first sales job. I still worked at Costco on the weekend. It was, I think they eventually, they never make, changed to Costco until after I left. But so Price Club on the weekend, because I made like so much money on the weekends there, time and a half on Sundays. So I had a regular job and I made no money. I was a salesperson. So you mostly made work for commission. So I did that. It did really well. I discovered that this is a good job for me. Blew all my money. I would go on these trips with a girlfriend that I made who was a Coke addict. Didn't know. She didn't do it around me. She did a couple times around me. Want to lie? No, thanks. But I, I drank even more with her. Oh my gosh. All the time. We, we lived to drink. We work hard and then party. Work hard, party, travel. Her dad was wealthy. So sent us on all these trips, cruises. I mean, different country, different. I was always, I was all over the place with this girl. Nothing photographed. Like we didn't have, can you imagine if we had our, our phones with cameras? I mean, Nothing. We would just go, 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 go. My money was on traveling, you know, buying drinks for everybody. I, and my brother would say to me, are you ever going to date somebody that could pay for, pay for your, <laughs> your drinks? Because I was dating younger guys, seven years younger. That was kind of a thing. So I went through a very, I was addicted to dating, addicted to boys, addicted to alcohol, addicted to success. And then my job was very conducive to partying. You know, you you wine and dine client. I never crossed the line of dating anybody that it was a client or anything like that. But yeah, that was a very exciting, I guess, fun time if you look back, but very empty. Then I, was, I bought my first home when I was 30 years old. I don't know. I met this gentleman that I was head over heels in love with. He was a screenwriter and for independent films. And I was fascinated by... His personality, I met him online. My father opened up the world of love at AOL to me. And so I got to meet a lot of interesting characters. And I thought, I'm going to meet people by their sign because I'm a Leo. And my best signs are Aries and Sagittarius. So I put in people, I would search people on love at AOL by their birthday. So this gentleman I met because he's Sagittarius, which sounds really sick, but it was a really interesting time. My life. So a year and a half, I dated him. He said, I never wanted to be married, never wanted to have kids, which I wanted both. But I thought, I'll change his mind because that's how logical I am. And that was, that ended up being so sad. He actually would say to me, 
we have never made love sober. Like, is it, do you think it's a problem? And I said, I don't think I'm ever sober at night. So he, it was the first time anyone ever like analyzed my drinking like that. It was in the morning when we were, you know, sober, just like sitting on the couch, petting the animals. He had a house full of animals. And I thought, wow. And I was 30 years old to think that I've been living like that for all those years that, yeah, maybe, maybe there's something to that. And I'm sure it's because I was so insecure around him because he's so successful. And so I just was insecure. You know, I don't know if I was even able to be, do that sober, you know, well, he ended up getting called to do a film and he was telling me about it. I would cry and they don't leave. I was too obsessed with him. I think he kind of scared him away a little bit. I looked for somebody who could be my emotional support. I dated people for emotional support. And if you looked, if somebody was to look at my life, they would probably think you're so strong, do all these things. Everything I did was through my mom's help, my father's help. And there was time in there that I expect to tell you is my father. I, I hadn't seen my father in about, I don't know, three or four months. The first thing he said to me was, have you gained weight? And I walked, turned around, walked away. I didn't talk to him for three years. So that happened in that whole time period. So I was kind of eventually, I was trying to break away from my father's sanity and his just a extreme need for me to be this perfect person that I was sad that I wasn't, but he also was sad that I wasn't. His eyes, my eyes. Now I'm at this point where I'm dating this guy, Dan. I ended up seeing my first counselor, if you can believe that. My mom had, when I tried to commit suicide when I was 16, my mom sent me to one of her hocus pocus friends. My mom's really into, she's really into like handwriting analysis, the sign. She'd take me to these psychic fingers. She would say it was for fun, but she really believed a lot of that stuff. And a lot of them would say that I was kind of a prude in my past. I mean, I never did a lot of things my friends did. So I always felt I was better, meaning I wasn't as bad as that, right? So my drinking was nothing compared to what all my friends did. So I was okay. So that's why I think that I never got a problem. And but I chose to hang out with partiers because they were more fun and they weren't uptight like I was. I'm a very uptight person, naturally. And I liked being around people who weren't because it got me out of who I was. So the handwriting analysis people told me that I, they diagnosed me a perfectionist, meaning that I didn't expect anybody else to be perfect, but I wanted myself to be perfect. And for, therefore, I will never be happy. I will never be satisfied, which is kind of a sick thing to hear when you're 16, that you'll never be happy. I would talk myself into not being sad about things. It was very hard. But anyway, so that I would, I'm, you know, regressing a little bit. So that's why I was with, with this gentleman, Dan. When he left, he ended up leaving to make this movie in New York. And he didn't invite me to go with him. And I was devastated. He called me. He's like, hey, and I, was, I just hung up on him. I was so angry. And he's like, I couldn't tell you because every time I told you, you cried. And so his, his idea of helping me was to just do it and then tell me when he was there. So I went to a shrink and she said, you're obsessed. You're obsessed. And I want you to do something different. I want you to learn to be by yourself. Have you ever been by yourself? I said, no. And she goes, you need to learn to love yourself. You're to live by yourself. What? That sounds horrible. And so she made me read a book, Fill the Fear and Do It Anyway. And I list, I bought the audio book, the regular, I bought 
I would just listen to that over and over and over in my skull because I was terrified of being by myself. I was terrified of not having a boyfriend. I would actually lie on my bed, and I'll never forget this, and just be so sad and depressed and just lay there and feel the depression. And I would look at the clock like 30 minutes later and be like, I feel better. Like just, just accept that this woman really helped me and she has no idea. And I don't know how to find her. I tried to find her a couple of years later. She doesn't realize how she helped me. She told me to make a list. I want you to make a list of everything you like that your mate has to have and a list of everything your mate cannot have. And I don't want you to sleep with that person until they have checked off everything on the list that they have to have to be your your husband, for example. And I'm like, wow, that's interesting. Because I was kind of, you know, I would make it sit. If I, you know, would have sex with a person, I would make them sit into my life, right? As opposed to finding someone that fits in your life and then be intimate with them. Yeah, I was going to do this task. I was going to do this. And so it was fascinating that I did this. I was single for three months. I went on, a, I was on the dating site deleted everything that I just delete, delete, delete. I ended up getting in the process of buying up. My father says, you have to buy something. You have, you know, you're just pissing your money away. You don't have a tax write-off. I'm like, I don't know where I want to live. You go, it doesn't matter. You can rent it out. Just buy property. You have to have a write-off. So he helped me, helped me meaning he chose the banker. I got a, a big commission check and he, he said, do not spend it. That's going to be your down payment on a condo. So I ended up buying a place in Belmont Shore, which is in between LA and Orange County because I sold it the whole Southern California and I bought a place on the water. So it's amazing the, the property value that it went up and that one acquisition helped my husband and I, you know, eventually move to a, a really nice place, a nice area that we probably shouldn't be living in, but we just got lucky with real estate. And so he did the same thing. I shouldn't even, but, but anyway, so during that time, when I'm buying this condo, I bought the condo. The day I closed escrow, I met my husband. It was really an interesting time. So I'm, I'm improving my mating, my mating life with a shrink that helped me tremendously. And I'm healthy enough to meet this man who had sent me a note. He, and he, it was just amazing. So we talked for a week. Then one night we talked all night, like we talked until our alarms went off and both of our alarms went off at six. And so it was kind of funny where like we heard ah, ah, at the same time and we never slept. And so we ended up deciding to meet a week later and we never have been separated since. We've been together ever since. So he has literally like changed my life in so many different ways, but it was very, very challenging because he's the opposite of me. And so through that time, and I met him when I was 32. So between, you know, the decade from like 97 to 2007 was very interesting. So we were partiers when we met. So we did a lot of drinking. I got to ask you, were you yeah. comparing him with that list? Yeah. That's cool. I was. I was. And I'm a rule follower, ironically. So of all the crates, it sounds like I was like dry riding the straight and narrow path of my life. And then 
on, I would let loose on weekends, you know, and I, there was a time in there where, that I didn't even, I glazed over, but I, I lived in from 27 to 30. I should have mentioned, I was just, just dating. I would just, my goal was to bring somebody home. Like I, it was awesome. I would go into like a bar with my girlfriend, Newport. I lived in Newport with her, Newport Beach, California. And I ride her bike to these like fun bars, listen to music and always meet somebody. And it was just unhealthy. And, uh, but they're all interesting characters. And I, I look back and I'm like, do I regret that? I really don't because I met so many different types of people, different interesting people, fun people. So one guy's like, hey, I, he's like, I just want you to know, I steal cars for a living. I'm like, great. I need to really up my game a little bit because this is not, I think the caliber of people I was meeting was not, was not great. So the bottom line is I just, I got it out of my system, so to speak. So I was like ready to settle down with a time. There's no, no type of person I hadn't dated or conquered, I should say, which is terrible to admit. But I wouldn't share this with with um, people in my life, I don't think, unless they want to know. There are some that know because they were with me when they, I was doing it. I just went through a stage, and then I, but I got out of that stage. It was only three years. And uh, when I met my my husband now, you know, it was an interesting thing because I real I craved that meeting people. I craved that conquest thing. It was almost like an ego it helped my ego. A little, and I, I analyzed to that because if I drank too much, you know, I would be very, very handsy, very affectionate. So if we had a party here, we had a lot of parties here, a ton. We bought the house because it's like a party house, the way it's designed. And my husband would be like, get off the neighbors, get off our friends. Like I was just very affectionate. And so it's a, it's a thing where my husband was seeing my drinking as becoming like I just, I drank until I passed out. You know, he was like, you don't have to drink that. Or he would say, you've had enough. And I'd get mad at him if he'd say that. But he never said, you have a problem. But he would say things like, stop smooching all over our friends. And they're, they're, it makes them uncomfortable. And oh my gosh, I was so happy. When we got married, when I was 34, I was 34. He asked me to get married on a third date, by the way. He's like, you will be my wife. I will marry you now. If you, if we go to Vegas right now, we'll get married. And I said, A, you're insane. We were both drinking at the time. And I said, B, you have no idea how hard I am. I've got a lot. I'll, let me just tell you everything people, people say about me. And I started rattling off the list. And I said, you know, it's tough because I don't see any red flags. Like, okay. He said, well, how long do I have to wait? I said, two years. So sure enough, two years from the day we met, he proposed. And I moved in with him after being together a year. I rented out my condo, moved into his condo. He had a condo on a golf course. We re I rented it to a private investigator. He rented that apartment or that condo for five years. It was a great, great investment. And then when we ended up getting married a year later, he had lost everything. So he had gotten to business with his brothers. He had, they had really good, they, his parents made a really good, uh, some, somebody bought their business. And so they kind of gave the money, you know, they took money to live on, but gave the money to the brothers because the brothers helped in the family business to buy another business, a manufacturing business. Well, it tanked in the, uh, September 11th, which is really sad. And so we were going to be married and he had nothing. And so I said, 
I said to him, do you want to just postpone our wedding? He said, nope, life is full of problems. Would you just get through that? And I thought, well, this guy's catch. You know, I can't even believe he would say that. Well, I ended up paying for a wedding, which is not a big deal because I'm a saver. And we had so like 130 people and we didn't, we did it on the golf course we lived on. It's beautiful venue, which was for weddings and receptions anyway. And so that was kind of the beginning of my new life. I wanted to have babies right away. When we were walking away from everyone cheering and we walked away, I said, let's have a baby. And he's like, are you nuts? We just got married. And I said, no, I want a baby. So I was 34. And I'm like, and he was only 31. He's like, we have plenty of time. I said, did you study biology? We don't have plenty of time. He's looking for something new. Because I said, I'm never going to give you an ultimatum. I mean, he's a smoker. I never said one word about him smoking. He knows it's not good for him. He, I just, uh, I said, you can't work with your brothers. Like the reason the business tanked is because of their brothers. It wasn't you. And so he's really conservative with money. And he's, he was a finance guy in the business. So he bought his own business and then bought another, then bought another. He had three businesses going. And then it was like, I'm too busy to have a kid. I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay. And I, I was going on a business trip and I said to him, in the next year, I am literally going to get artificial insemination. I want you to be my husband and the father, but I want a baby. And you told me you wanted kids. I am 37. We have to have a child. And if you don't, and if you, if you don't want a child, then we have to do something else. And so that was awful to say, but I was, I meant it. Like he was, he's the guy who like, we don't have enough money. We don't have enough time. We don't have we will never have enough of anything. We'll acclimate our lives to a child. So well, I came back from the business trip and he said, let's have a baby. And I was so excited. Three months later, I was pregnant with my perfect uh, child. We were very lucky because I, I heard that's not easy for a 37-year-old. But we, thank God I didn't listen to anybody before because I would have been nervous. And perfect pregnancy, super easy. Uh, I worked, I mean, I was lifting weights and I'm really into, uh, you know, my, my vanity, my, my health. So I did not drink one drop. I didn't drink coffee. I mean, I had nothing unhealthy that whole year. And then I nursed him for two years after. So I didn't drink that whole two years after. So I was sober for three years. So alcohol wasn't even a thought in our minds. But then when I was able to drink again, I always drank to excess. So that was, that was that decade. So now we're on, now I'm 40, from 40 to 50. Wow. This is the, the drinking year. So from 2007, it was a really tough economy. Really, really tough. My husband actually put our house up for sale. I was devastated. The one that we're living in now. We had lived in two different houses because he, had, he wanted to move to a bigger house. I got pregnant again and lost the second baby. But the doctor said, just keep your, cause you're 40. It's normal. So just keep trying. So we had, we did get pregnant again. And then I had my set, my, my Jesse, my step, my baby when I, in 2008, got pregnant with him and again, didn't drink for three years. So the same, the same scenario, but counted the days till I could. And I had to, I'm figuring out with my jobs, how to have two children and work still the way we built our lifestyle, where we live and what I wanted for my children, I had to work and it was just very stressful for all of us. So stress drinking. And then my husband was working so much that I was lonely. So every night 
I would drink my red wine. And evidently, I'm me when I drink red wine. So what I would do throughout all my years of drinking, anything that, like, if I, you know, did something stupid, like, didn't remember who I slept with, or, you know, I would, whatever alcohol I was drinking, I wouldn't drink that alcohol again. So I was blamed on the type of alcohol. I never blamed it on just drinking to excess. So when I was with my husband during this, there was a point. I just, it was fighting every night. You know, we were just fighting. And I was fighting because he was ignoring me, just would talk to me, would make me drink more. And so we ended up, he ended up sitting the kids down at one point during our marriage. I think they were, my youngest one was five. My oldest one was eight and told them that he was leaving me, that mommy and daddy are getting divorced because they can't get along. I wasn't even there. And my youngest son said, no, you are not leaving my mom. You are going to work it out. I'm not leaving this house. You are going to, you are going to make friends with mom. You are not, you're not leaving. You're not divorcing my mom. I could not believe, I I mean, knowing him now, I I believe he said it, but it was unbelievable that he said that. I still thank him for that because my husband started thinking, well, we need a psychiatrist. He actually said to me, we don't need a psychologist. We need a psychiatrist, someone with a PhD to fix us. I'm not even sure it was our drinking, my drinking. It was a lot of other stuff too, but I drank because of it. I drank because I was lonely. He worked all the time. But then again, maybe he wasn't coming home because it was too much at home, you know, with the drinking. And I had, I had to handle my job and the kids 100%. And he wasn't helping at all. And, but he's such a nice person and such a, he was like the best human being I'd ever met in my life. Too hard. Then I started just accepting. If he leaves me, I have to accept it. His brother gave me a book by Eckhart Tolle, The New Earth that I devoured. I mean, listen to it over and over. You have to, because it's so deep and there's so much compacted and just learning to accept what is learning to meditate. I'm like, this man is leaving me. And, and I started doing all this self, this, this work on myself, stop drinking again, you know, tried to stop drinking, would only drink maybe with him or you know, I've, I've had all these rules of drinking. So that really helped the situation. I would have like, I would make myself just have a couple. Well, you could fit two, you could fit a whole bottle of wine in two glasses with the glasses that we have, you know? So two glasses of wine as a bottle, I'm still having a bottle night. And I would end up doing it differently to where I would do it around him, but I would do it with my girlfriend. So I would go out, I had this group of friends. We'd go out every, every quarter, we'd pick a spot, stay in a nice hotel. These were all business women, all making really good money, go to these really nice places. And we would, a lot of times not even leave the room, we would drink so much to tell we passed out. And then my other girlfriend would bring in like edible marijuana, whatever. So in some form, you know, she'd be here, try it on this, try it in this butter, put this butter on your cracker, you know, there's marijuana in it. Or, so it was just this, these crazy stories. My husband could not stand that I would go out with these girls. He had no idea what, he's like, I have no idea what you're doing. I have no idea what's happening. If, you're, if your safety is at risk, I know how you are. So he was worried about that. Uh, he talked to me a lot about, oh, everything's fine. I would just do that, you know, whatever. Everything's fine. So 
there was always the talk about the concern with my drinking. And I got heavily into the meditation, trying to bring some peace to my brain because my brain is just so loud with what I should be doing, my, my stress at work all the time, but I have to do this job now because I, the money that you make and in sales, it's, I'm not, a, I don't have a, a master's of anything or a PhD in anything like my family does. I sell stuff and you make money, you got to sell. So there's a lot of stress involved and uh, with your quotas and stuff like that. So then the pandemic hit in two, 2020, the pandemic hit. I was supposed to go to, I want a trip to Barcelona. We were scheduled to go April, 2020, my whole family to go to Barcelona. I want a trip for two, my husband and I, and I just upgraded it to have my children go because they're old enough to enjoy it and appreciate it. And one of my kids is really into history, like, and there's so much history. So I just thought it's perfect. And the freaking, the freaking, you know, pandemic. And I was in tears, honestly, in tears. I was so sad at home. I like, I remember this rainy day, my my company sent a bottle of wine to everybody. And I drank that whole bottle of wine, like from noon on. And I walked in the rain, drunk. I was raining out. And I just thought I'm going to go walk in the rain. I was so depressed, crying my eyes out, going, how am I going to do this life without seeing my clients? Without, how am I going to put my kids through, through this? They're, they're going to this expensive art school. You know, they're both musicians. So how am I going to, support their dreams oh my god and i my husband you know pays for the big things like the the house the all the he he pays for the frame and the kids cars and their insurance and all that because it all goes to the business i paid for you know everything else like the fun the the food the whatever the trips I'd pay for the color in our lives and it's expensive. We, we don't live cheaply. So all that scared me. It was like a ton of bricks coming down. And so I just thought, well, I'll work every day till five and booze. It was booze fest every night. And it was every single night I was drunk. I, but I thought I changed to white wine because I'm not me when I drink white wine, supposedly. That's my rationale because there were no episodes yet. So that went on for two years. And then it got to a point where I threw up in a Uber. I was with my girlfriends at a champagne brunch. God knows how much champagne I had. Never stopped drinking it. Then they wanted to take a party elsewhere. And we did. And I passed out on the freaking bench at the place. And I all, you know what I said? Did I look ugly? <laughs> did my girlfriend she's all no you were sleep you were like sleeping beauty of course she's gonna say that you know and I was just like oh my god and then they she threw me in an uber and called my husband and said I'm sending your daughter your your wife home and I threw up in that uber and they he called the ambulance and I was like up the hill he called the ambulance I was by my house like down the hill so all my husband had to do was come down the hill to this gas station and, and get me. And so my son saw me walk in the house because remember, champagne brunch, we started early drinking. So this was, it was not late. My son was still at my 13-year-old and he still makes fun of me the way I looked when I walked in. I mean, I was a mess. And so I don't remember one thing. I don't remember any of it. 
I don't remember being at the second bar. I don't remember an Uber. I don't remember a ambulance, but I had to pay a thousand dollars, 300 to the Uber, 700 for the ambulance that arrived to care for me because the guy at the gas station didn't know what to do. I was wandering aimlessly through, and this is like a year ago. Okay. This is me. And I'm like, this is not who I am, but it is. I have to just face that fact. And so my husband's like, what is it going to take? Is, this, is it going to take this? He did say that to me. And I just was like, okay, I'm done. So that started me drinking alone, like hiding it upstairs in the office. Because if, if nobody, it's like kind of like the tree that falls in the forest. Does it really make a noise? You know, the girl who goes up to the office, is she really drinking? No one sees her. Is she really drinking? So, but I would think I was fine and go downstairs, get something to drink, talk to people. And my husband would be like to the boys, you know, like she's been drinking. And he, I, the boys told me this. I didn't see him do it, but in behind my back, and I guess he would roll his eyes and my, and I would say to my son, uh, my older one, I go, what does dad say? And he's like, he just said, because it hurts my feelings when I see him roll his eyes really hurts my feelings because my, my son's very, they're, they're artists, they're sensitive, they're gentle, kind boys, thank God. Both of them are always going to be on my side. You know, they, they'll say things like, mom, you just like to have a good time. And then I have to say to them, no, it's I have a problem. Like, I just, I can't do it. So the last straw was, and this was the day before I came to IAS, my my a good friend of mine is a musician. He's an entertainment lawyer, but he is a musician. I taught. I brought my son because my son didn't want to go to college at that time, because I don't need to because I'm a musician. And I said, I really want you to go. If you can go, you should feel fortunate because not everybody is able to go to college, and you should just take advantage of it and use it to your advantage. You can meet people there, connect people. Even if you go in LA, you can meet people to do your, your career. Even if you're a studio musician, all he wants to do is play music. I just said, I do want you to get, just get the degree, just get it and then move on. I said, I want you to meet a gentleman who's a full-blown musician, toured with a band, a band called Susie Q in the 90s. He's very successful entertainment lawyer. So he gets to help a lot of very famous people and I wanted them to meet. And so he was playing at this, this bar called The Wine Bar in Newport Beach, my son and I went and saw and watched. And I sat there and literally stared at the bar the whole freaking time. I wanted a glass of wine. My son was driving that night too. He's, he was, he's 16. So I went to the bar and I ordered a glass of Pinot Grigio, which was my drink for the last two years. And then I ordered another one. Then I ordered another one. Then I closed out my tab. Now, these drinks were big. Like they were in the, you know, so I probably had a bottle. Closed out my tab and everything was fine. You know, that was my normal. That was my, I was fine. And I wasn't driving. I knew I wouldn't have had the third if I was driving. So I started, you know, dancing with everybody else who's there. Like my friend's wife was there. All the ladies had been drinking. They were all drunk. A bunch of drunk moms, you know, all my age. And I thought, I want to I wanna be drunk like them, you know? And so then there was a person who came in. Okay, so the guy walks in. They're filming a, God, a reality series in the neighborhood. We're in Newport Beach and they're, you know, they probably wanted a nice house. And so uh, they're filming a reality series and they wanted to promote it. And so the promoter said, open bar. Like, 
I'm going to buy all these drinks and you can drink. And my son looks at me and goes, no, mom, you've had enough. Because he saw me dancing and happy and everything. The look on his face, I said, honey, I just like to have a good time. I just want to dance. I was singing. I knew all the songs they were playing. I was having a great time. And my friend, Roger, you know, he was on, on stage. He could see me, thank God. But he had, there was a movie star there, Renee Zelliger. She's one of his friends. And she was there. And so I wanted to meet her. I said to my son, I want to meet her. Just tell her how much I love movies, how I've grown up watching her. And he's like, oh my God, Mark, who cares? You know, I was like, let's just go. I was like, I've got to go. I've got to go. So he goes, listen, I'm going to go. And dad, I'm going to have dad come pick you up. I said, okay. Like if I was sober, I would have never said okay to that. Because my husband, first of all, that call is going to piss him off. And I never want to make him angry because he doesn't deserve it. There's one thing I have for my husband is a lot of respect. I would never have said okay to that. So this is what ends up going down. He leaves. I am, I continue to drink with this woman and schmoozing with these people that are making this, this reality show, dancing to the music, singing, talking to Raj's wife. My husband, I finally noticed him. He said he was there for an hour before I noticed him. He observed me for an hour. He said, I put myself in so much danger. He said the people that were hitting on me that I didn't even realize were hitting on me. And anyway, so at the end of the day, we ended up getting <laughs> the last picture I have of the last day of drink was my husband in between me and Renee Zellweger hugging him, you know. She was drunk too. She was Rick. I saw everybody was drinking in that little, it was a little bar, quaint little bar in Newport. And so we, I don't remember leaving there, coming home or anything. So in the morning I came down, had my coffee and he proceeds to tell me everything that, that he observed play by play. Then he said, as at the end, I will never leave you, but I'm not going to come to your rescue anymore i'm done coming to your rescue i'm done and my son was in the room he, he walked in a little bit later and i said to him i'm really sorry for last night he says what do you want me to say and i said nothing i just want you to know i'm sorry and i'm never going to drink again and he said i've heard that before and i said you're right and I said, so I'm just going to show you. I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to show you. He said, mom, you just like to have a good time. And I said, you know, you say that and I appreciate it, but I've definitely got a problem. And that was the, that was kind of it. And I stopped drinking and that was the day I stopped drinking. So that was Sunday where I all had that conversation in our kitchen. So it was Monday, no, Sunday, no drinking, Monday, no drinking, Tuesday, no drinking, Wednesday, no drinking. Then Thursday morning at 4 a.m., I woke up and I had fallen asleep on the couch watching TV. I'm looking around the room and I'm just like, how am I going to do this by myself? And I'm like, I cannot see myself walking into a, a, a meeting room where I know people in there. I just can't do it. And so I want to see if there's an app for this. So I looked on my, my app store, you know, sober or whatever. And I found I am sober, downloaded it, paid the 40 bucks and just started community, just started rating things and saw this sale. And it was said seven o'clock Eastern time AM. And I was like, that's like any minute now. 
my laptop happened to be sitting on the table downstairs. I literally didn't even like brush my hair. I, <laughs> I, you know, got ready for bed the night before and got on the sale that morning. And I saw you and Fluffy and the rest is history. I'm now addicted to IAS and I'm addicted to my, my new sober community, my Zoom meetings. I, I think I don't miss a call. I go on one Zoom a day at least, sometimes two. And I have so, a drink, four and a half months. Four and a half months. So let's talk about that. Those days where you told your son, I'm never going to drink again until that morning you were laying on the couch wondering, how am I going to do this alone? And I, I understand like the meetings, like in-person meetings, because I'm not good with groups. And you're like, I can't do this alone. So you downloaded the I Am Sober app that morning. That morning, you literally saw a Zoom meeting and went, because that's the first, I remember seeing you that morning on the, the Sober Town. Yeah. Zoom. Well, I was either day three or day four. I forget how the numbers worked on my app, the counter, but I, you guys were just like applauding and so excited. And I was like, oh my God, this is so, am I dreaming this? It was so early in the morning. I was like, I could possibly be draining this. It's really fascinating. And what's fascinating is the sleep. I even, I'll say to my husband, I can't believe I slept eight hours. I mean, I slept four hours a night for almost my whole life. Five hours, maybe. I just, that's how I slept. And when I went to the doctor and even I would write like, how many glasses of alcohol do you have? Do you consume a day? I would put four or a week, I would put 14 because I thought, well, if I do two, two drinks a day. That's not an alcoholic, but I'm sure I, I know I was drinking more than that. And so I would ask, I would, would even ask like, is that, am I, is that an alcoholic? He goes, I drink a bottle of Pinot a, a night. He goes, it depends on how it affects your life. He goes, is it affecting your job, your family? And of course I was saying no. And even when I was going to the shrinks with my, with my husband, I was, I was telling him I'd have two glasses of wine. I wasn't telling him that my wine was a problem or my husband was telling him my wine was a problem. And I was telling him it wasn't that his problem was that he was blaming it on that, my unhappiness. So there was a lot that changed. I and mean, we saw that shrink for nine months. And he changed, my husband fixed a lot of things. I fixed a lot of things. So it's just been a, my, my sobriety has been so gradual. And so when people reset, 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 the only difference in me is that I was resetting off the app. You know, I had told people I would quit drinking quite a bit. And I would go on a diet. Like with me, I, I, I've run 14 half marathons. You can't booze it up when you're training for that. But I would definitely sit drinking in there. So I could have a night where I drank too much. I wouldn't train the next day. But I would actually train. I would do the half marathons to keep my weight down. Like I don't even, and I just, I just recently signed up for a full marathon. That's how insane I am. So I did the full marathon because I'm like, I have no excuse. I can run. I'm not drinking. There's no excuse. So now I have to, my new addictions, candy. You know, I have to, I can't eat candy because you have no energy when you, when you eat candy. So I live my life with addictions. I just, I, and we all know, the whole family knows it. I just say, I'm an addict. I'm an addict with peanut butter. I have cold turkey peanut butter. I have cold turkey jelly beans. I have cold turkey, uh, you know, chocolate chip cookies. I've cold, but those things weren't aligned with the, the drinking was really hard because everything triggered me. I would, when you're sober, you learn I'm triggered at a concert when I'm having a great time. Why the heck would that trigger me? 
I'm having a great time. I said it out loud to my son. I said, I'm sitting here with you. I feel like I'm in heaven, listening to this incredible music, great seats, with my darling son who just loves the music. And seeing your children have joy like that is the biggest thing, right? And then why do I want to go to the bar? It's just like, I want to fuel a fire. Like I want more, more, more. So that's the thing with me is just analyzing when you have those cravings. And I also had a screaming fit, pissed off at something that happened at work. And I said, see, I wouldn't be doing this to my husband and my son. I go, I wouldn't be screaming like this if I had wine. I almost wanted him to say, have some, then have it. But he's like, no, scream, scream and cry. It is way better than when you drink. And I used to say to him in our fights, you don't, you just don't like who I am. You don't like me. He's like, oh, I love you. Not on that poison. I don't, I don't love you on wine at all. So that was, you know, if you choose to stay on that, then we can't. This marriage, you know, at one point he said that, that marriage won't last. But when he last said to me, he'll never leave me. I wonder, I, I never questioned why he said that. I'd love to know why, but he, I'll never leave you, but I'm not coming to your rescue. Which probably means I'm going to end up dead anyway, right? Something killed me or, you know, it's just because I've just been blessed my whole life. People coming to my rescue. I have had kind gentlemen that I work with basically carry me like one person, one arm this way, one arm this way, carrying me to my room to make sure I'm in my room safely for the next business meeting, making sure I'm up in the morning. Carolyn, you got to get up. If I sleep in, they make up a story. She wasn't feeling well. You know, I mean, I've had people make excuses for me, care for me my whole life. I, I usually show up. Very rare that I don't, but the various, like I can count on like one hand, the times that I was, wasn't able to make something or I'm in a new job and we have all this training. I woke up at noon the next day. I missed like five trainings and I said nothing. And I like, but you, you're like paranoid. Does anybody know? Does anybody know? They probably know. There was one, I'll never forget this. When I was new at this job, my last job. Uh, I wasn't drinking because I just didn't want to make a fool of myself to this new company. So I thought I'm going to have no drinks at all at this job, at this, at this meeting. And I walked, I, she's like, be one of us, have a drink. Come on, be one of us. It festered, it festered, it festered, it festered. Be one of us. That girl went to rehab for 30 days. About a year after that, uh, that conversation, she put herself in rehab. She said that she's had a problem for so many years. It's unbelievable. She's a multimillionaire, this girl. The company had bought her business. It doesn't matter. It gets all levels, you know, this addiction. It's fascinating. You couldn't do it about on your own. Let's talk about being connected to a community. What's that done for you? Well, I don't think that's a great question. I uh, about what was it, a month before the, I went sober. Was it a month before, maybe three weeks or so before? I went to an Eckhart Tolle retreat, and I hesitated doing that in the past because it was it's so much money, and their the retreats are at kind of an expensive venue. But I thought, you know what? I have two friends who live in Arizona. I'll make an excuse. Are you? I'll use that time to see my two friends. One of them has stopped drinking, and the other one was my drinking buddy. Uh, for two years. 
I was her mentor in our last, our last company. I went to secretary retreat and he said, in, in the, during the retreat, he said something very profound. He goes, I want all of you to do something for me. If you can, I want you to not drink alcohol. Don't eat, oh, don't overeat. Just eat healthy. Do not consume any social media. Do not turn your TV on. Just be present with yourself. Just be here now. And I was thinking that is impossible. But, you know, I, I didn't turn my TV on once, which is great for me. I definitely listened to some things on the internet, like news and stuff, because I, I was I'm obsessed with the news. And then I drank one glass of red wine, which is unusual because I was away from my husband, one glass of Cabernet each night for dinner. Like, because I, I would have one meal, one big meal at lunch. And then, because we weren't exercising, so I thought, I don't want to gain weight while I'm here. And then I would have one glass of wine at dinner. And the only reason I did it was because a girl came up to me from the retreat. She introduced herself. She's from San Diego. And she said, hey, let's have our uh, let's have one glass of wine. I, had, I found a drinking buddy because I was sitting in the bar. I wanted to listen to the waterfall. And so I just sat there listening to the waterfall. And, you know, breathing the, the cool Arizona air. It wasn't really cool. It was kind of hot, but it was very very dry. So it wasn't humid or anything. It was nice. And she became my drinking buddy and she's still a friend of mine today. But after the retreat, we hung out at the, at the airport and had four glasses of wine together before our plane took off. Can you believe that? Like I learned nothing at that retreat. So to, to your point, connection, going on these Zooms and being with a room full of people who are all achieving the same thing or want to achieve the same thing, who have gone through the same things in different variations, obviously, hearing their stories, hearing the trauma that they've lived through. I mean, and for me as a person always going, well, I can't really complain about my trauma because it's nothing like my father-in-law is a Holocaust survivor. Holy crap. Like to tell my husband of my trauma, he would like roll his eyes. You know, his story is so gruesome that he survived that well, who am I? Who am I to say that anything I went through? I, I never, I've never needed anything. Both my parents, you know, made good money. I never needed a thing. I always had, I, they paid for my college. They paid for everything. Yeah. So for me to even say that I had trauma is being a little bit duty, I guess. I, I just felt like it, I didn't, it wasn't in a place to say that ever. But hearing all these other people and learning that so many people have addiction because of trauma. I am able to use the word and not feel guilty about it. It's my own trauma, right? I interpreted the world in, in the way that I interpreted the world. And I feel like my children for sure have made me a better person. Sean made me a better person. My last long relationship of seven years, my husband, 22 years, has made me a better person. So all these people, I'm sad to say, yeah, I did the work. But it was with their influence. And am I able to be by myself now and be happy by myself? Finally, finally, after all these years. You're only 137 days into your sobriety. But you, in your sobriety, you have the confidence 
from outside looking in that you talk about that good friend of yours that had so much confidence. It seems like you have all of that confidence in your, your sobriety. How has all that helped you on the IES app? Well, it's massive. So I listened to all the podcast. I haven't even gotten through all the podcasts yet. I, I read a lot of Quitlet that is recommended. I've read about three books so far since I, maybe four, since I've been with a group. I go on the Zooms, all of them. The ladies, the, the co-ed one, the sober town, I go on all of them. I love all the people from all the different countries. That's fun too. I just learned so much. I read posts like crazy. So I do all of it. You're just involved on on every level of of your sobriety. You've taken charge of your sobriety. I yeah. know this, Carolyn. Without all of you, I wouldn't be sober today because I've been sober for nine years and I've been working trying to get sober for over 40 years. For me, the community ended up being everything when, yeah. when I found IAS. And you, you like the Zooms. Some of us can't do a lot of the Zooms. Well, me, I'm not really good yeah. around groups. I'm good with one-on-one. But you've been able to use all of these tools. And boom, congratulations on 137 <laughs> days where you just seem like you're alive and thriving. I got to ask you, what... What is your kids and husband? They see you right now doing all of this. What do they think about about this? Well, that's a really funny thing. Well, my husband, I he's just like, thank God, you know, he's just so happy. We're we've always had my family's really close, the four of us. I think it's because we all have like the music thing in common. So we we spend a lot of time family call like we call it family fun day we go to concerts and um like a lot of parent families do trips well we've done a few of those but our big extravagant things are like you know seeing paul mccartney together in really good seats and music is just a huge part of all of our lives but i think that the biggest thing and i used to always drink when we went to all those concerts right i was always the the buzzed one or the one that was being loud and people are going, shh, you know, because I was just obnoxious and too affectionate. And teenagers don't like you hanging on them. Both of my kids are teenagers. But so as far as how's my family, they they love it. My one, my youngest son says, I don't say yes. He wants me to buy him everything. And I say, no. He said, when I was buzzed, I said, I said, yes, a lot more. So he, he misses that Carolyn, you know, that mommy, I should say. But I said, no, it's healthy that you don't get everything you want. So they're, they're all, we're all adjusting. We're all adjusting to me. And I do still have my moments where I wish I could drink. I'm sure that's always going to be there. I even, I used, I remember I used to think, gosh, well, maybe this is before I started the, this kind of program, I call it. Before that, I was thinking, well, God, well, my husband, when we retire, maybe we can drink together. So it'll be okay. Or. I, my brain would go to, you know, if he ever passes away, I'll start drinking again, or which is horrible to even say, or, you know, you talked about, uh, you know, my, my Tesla, where when I bought the Tesla, it was first because my boss had one. And I thought that you don't have to touch stinky, disgusting gas. How awesome. And it wasn't, it, was, it was, wasn't any more than a regular car because I was paying 500 a month or 500, a, was it 500 a week, I think on gas. I drove so much for my job um, being in sales. 
And so I justified it to where it was, it cost the same. And then I also realized that, hey, that they're having a feature where you can, you could sit in the back and your car drives you home. And you know, I'm like, that's great for me. So I can drink too much and not drive. And, not, you know, it's just the sick things that our brains go to, to find the, win- the door, right? The third door. That book talks about the third door. I spent my whole life trying to find the third door. And there just isn't one. There so. isn't one. And I, I just think that's yeah. fascinating that one of the reasons you wanted a Tesla is because if you were too drunk, it could drive you home. And that's just how our, our addict minds work, right? We're that third door, whatever it may be. And I, I just love that as part of your story. It's powerful to where our minds take us. You know, a lot of people do certain recovery, like there's AA, smart recovery. Are you really doing any program at all or just doing, you're making your program up as you go? I am using IAS, the Zooms, the book. You know, I, I'm on one Telegram with a group of gals that invited me in. Uh, that I just, it, it's just fun. You know, we share fun, funny things. It's like a, they're all funny people. So uh, laughter. I listen to a lot of comedians during the first couple months. I, because I like to laugh. Laughing to me is a biggie. So uh, comedians help a lot. A lot of comedians had to go sober or die, right? Think of all the comedians who are dead. A lot of rock stars, same subject, are dead from too much of anything, too much substance. So we, we talk about that. Anyway, it's, there's a lot of people that are going through this. We're not alone for sure. But it does help to have a, a group of friends that, that uh, you could share anything with and they don't judge you. They don't think you're a dirt bag because you did something terrible. And even if I think I am, can you believe I did that? Oh my God. So you really don't have a specific recovery, recovery system. You're using what's in front of you right now as your recovery system. Yeah. yeah. If I'm not able to go on is because of time situations for something with the kids, whatever, I'm always listening to a podcast from your website, Sobertown. Yeah, podcast. I listen to that. Carolyn, Anonymous Day. Is there? Is there alcohol a... free? By the way, AF is alcohol free. Thank you so much for coming on Sober Town, sharing your story. It's been re- like really, we live so busy of lives. It's been really hard connect, and we've finally been able to to find this time. I just really, really appreciate you making the, your time and telling your story and sharing it with us. It's powerful. And I think that people need to know that, you know, because there's so many people out there, Carolyn, where they have all the luxuries of life and they don't even realize that they're in the bond of, of addiction because they're waiting to be living under the bridge or, or all these other consequences. And they don't even realize that they're in bondage. And I think that your story can help them see that uh, alcohol can hold you in bondage wherever you're at. Oh, yeah, for sure. We appreciate you, Drifter, and all you've done for this community. So thank you. Thank you. Is there anything you want to tell somebody just getting going, just starting their journey? Gosh, I, I would just immerse myself in all the tools. I mean, I just, whether I you know, was in a bad mood or didn't feel like going to the Zooms. 
I still, I still went. And then after I leave, I feel better every single time. So I just, you, you know how they say, like even going to the gym, the first step is just 50% of it is just showing up. Just, just go. And you don't want to a lot of times. A lot of people don't want to, but if in the beginning, I feel for the first year at least, I need to listen to something that has to do with sobriety. That's my rule for myself. <laughs> cool, cool. Because it's powerful. These are neural pathways that have been built. And in my opinion, they're always going to be there. We just, it depends how yeah. much power we give them. And by being together, showing up on IAS, showing up at the Zooms, showing up at the Silvertown Facebook group, where, whatever, boom, rethink the drink, this naked mind, whatever community is yours, showing up, not only are you helping yourself, you're helping uh, the person next to you that's trying to get sober. So, boom. Yep. See you soon. Bye-bye.